welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road, a church with congregations in Guildford and Woking in the UK. To find out more about who we are and what we're up to, please visit us online at EmmausRoad.com. So I have the privilege now of introducing to you Merv Thomas. Merv, do you want to slowly make your way up here? Merv is the founder and CEO of the international human rights organization CSW. He and his wife Wendy have been part of the Emmaus community for over two years now, which is really exciting. And a, a small plug here, uh, Merv has written a biography. It's called Standing Up, Speaking Out, 40 Years Fighting Injustice, and is available in all good bookshops from early January. So do keep your eyes out open for that one, and hopefully we'll have a few here once it's released. So um, we're gonna I'm going to interview Merv now, ask him a few questions before Scott comes and speaks to us. Should we give Merv a round of applause? You can't so. see anything up here, can you? I know, you just have to pretend they're not <laughs> there. It's the best way. Somebody, um, somebody's <laughs> waving at the back. <laughs> they are there, then. They are there. Okay, so for the benefit of those who aren't familiar with CSW, can you briefly explain what it is that the organisation does? I know the word briefly you, you emphasise there. <laughs> Um, yeah, okay, CSW is, um, I think you already said, we are an international human rights charity and uh, we, we basically, we stand uh, with, with anybody in the world who's facing injustice because of their religion or belief and uh, so we're, we're an advocacy organisation, we don't do aid, we don't deliver food and medicines, we don't uh, deliver Bibles, uh, in fact what we do is provide a voice, Proverbs 31 says that we are to speak up for those who are unable to speak for themselves and so uh, that's what we try and do and we do that we do that speaking in the political arenas of the world we um, uh, we do a lot of work in Westminster I, I actually sit on the um, Foreign Secretary's Human Rights Advisory Group so I talk there about freedom of religion uh, we've got an office in Brussels I think we'll still have an office in Brussels <laughs> next year too. Who knows? Um, and uh, we've, uh, we've got an office in Washington, D.C. We do a lot of work on Capitol Hill and New York and Geneva at the United Nations where we have status. Wow, that's in some incredible work. Can I just apologise for the noise? Apparently they're putting scaffolding up, so oh. not much we can do about it. Um, so 40 years fighting injustice. Obviously, you must have started at a very young age. Um, <laughs> yeah. Where did it all start for you? Yeah, well, that's why the youth takeover, I guess, is why they asked me to come today. But, um, yeah, uh, well, it started, um, it started... I was doing a bit of work in Parliament. In, in, you know, I was in my 20s. And um, uh, we heard about Christian persecution in Russia and Romania, the old Soviet countries. And, uh, and so uh, I, was, uh, I was working for a Catholic MP, and it's quite interesting, actually, because CSW started. Um, I, I'm a, a Pentecostal by tradition. I grew up as a Pentecostal. I started it with a Catholic MP, and the other MP that started with us was a, an Ulster Unionist, who at the time was the Grand Master of the World Orange Order. So uh, we had a sort of breadth of uh, Christianity there. Uh, as you can guess, we never discussed theology, otherwise CSW wouldn't still be in existence. Uh, but uh, but we, we felt we 
needed to respond to what was happening in, in Eastern Europe at the time. And, and God very clearly showed me that we were to be a voice and not to be anything else. And to, uh, to be, we didn't sort of use the word advocacy in those days, but to be an advocacy organisation. And of course, um, uh, which we did. Um, and, um, and I guess it really, although we started that, we actually started the organisation. Our first meeting was about this time in 1978, 40 years ago. And uh, we legally became a, a CSW in the next year. And um, we, but it really started for me when I first went to Romania to, um, to see uh, about the persecution of Christians there. And it really started for me when I got arrested when I went there, trying to visit, uh, trying to visit a priest. I was going to say an elderly priest, but when I realise now that he was the same age as I am now, he seemed elderly in those days, but uh, he'd spent 21 years of his life in prison and uh, trying to just visit him when he was under house arrest. I got arrested myself, and uh, and that was the beginning, I think, of, of being, being able to... 1 Corinthians 12, 26 said we're to... We're to um, uh, that we are to suffer. We, we're part of the body of Christ and we suffer when they suffer. But we don't often really do that. But I guess that was the beginning of it. And then, and then a little bit later, of course, in 1989, communism fell all over Europe. 1989, 1990. Um, and, um, and we, we then had to look around the rest of the world. You know, do, is there still a need for CSW? The only places we knew of persecution was in Eastern Europe. Um, and so we looked around the rest of the world and we realised, yes, there was lots of other persecution going on. Uh, and so we broadened our horizons. And in fact, um, one of the first places we were working in was, was, was Burma. And, uh, and, and we, we realised as we were speaking up for Christian groups in Burma that in fact um, alongside the Christian groups there was a group called the Rohingya Muslims and uh, everybody's heard of them today but nobody had heard of them 18 years ago or, or even 20 years ago and we had to decide you know as a Christian as Christians do we just speak up for the Christian groups there or do we speak up for the Muslims too and so that led us to to realize that actually what would Jesus do and I, I don't want to steal Scott's thunder because he's going to be talking about it later Jesus where he clearly would reach out to all those facing injustice and so we we broaden our horizons and in fact today something like 79% of the world's population live in countries with high or very high restrictions on religious freedom. Wow, that's what an incredible story. I didn't realise you'd been arrested as a... Have you been arrested since? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we won't talk about that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that was in London. No, no. <laughs> okay. Um, so um, so you, you, you stand, stand with people who are being discriminated against, who are being persecuted. Can you expand on, on that? What does that look like for people? And maybe you have a story that you can tell yeah. us around that. I mean, it looks, it looks different in different places, of course. And, and you know, maybe if you're growing... If a, a child growing up in Pakistan, for example, um, would very soon realise that this is discrimination, that they, would, they wouldn't be able to get a... Well, they would never be able to get an A grade in school, for example, because they are a Christian, and so they would never be able to achieve like the other children. They'd also find that they weren't allowed to sit on the same table at lunchtime or drink from the same communal cup that everybody else does because they're Christians, and they grow up in that environment. Um, in somewhere like Iraq, um, and uh, you know, Scott and I were both in Iraq last year, um, you, I, I, met a, I met a lady there, a Christian lady there, who had um, 
she'd been taken by ISIS. We were actually in Mosul just a week after it had been liberated. And uh, we met a lady who had, um, uh, who had been taken by ISIS three years previously, a Christian girl, and she had been trafficked and owned by 22 different men in three years. She knew the name of every man that had owned her. She tried to escape from them. She jumped from a third floor window to escape. Um, she, uh, she, at one point, she was tied to a post in the street with a for sale sign on her, and people would come by and lift her clothing to inspect what they were buying. Absolutely horrible stuff. When she eventually escaped, uh, she went back to her church, and, uh, and they and her family, they disowned her because she'd brought shame on them. This is, a, a, this is not an evangelical church. This is a, a, an Assyrian Orthodox church. It's very much tied up with the culture there too. But they're the kind of things that as identifying as a Christian uh, that people can face. And, and in northern Nigeria, another place I was at last year, um, Christians are now being, uh, now being attacked by a group called the Fulani Herdsmen. And uh, they, are, they are going around villages where uh, the farmers are largely Christian and they're killing the farmers. They're, um, uh, they're killing them in their churches. They're killing them in their fields. Um, they've, got, they've got their very sophisticated weaponry and, uh, and, and Christians are being killed because they're Christians out there. So it looks different in different places. Yeah. Just, I mean, that's horrendous stories that we just can't imagine here. Thank you for sharing those. So lastly then, um, what would you say that we can learn from those who are facing persecution? Wow, this would take me all day. Uh, No, I know I haven't. Thank you. You keep telling me. (laughs) Um, You know, uh, two things I'd say. Uh, One is that, um, you know, wherever I've been in the world in the last 40 years and met people who have been in prison, met the families of those that have... um, uh, of, of people that have been killed. One thing I've noticed always is that, that they, they have the word of God inside them. And one of the things we can learn from them is, you know, it's so important to know the word of God, to have it inside you. When you talk to these people, it, it, their whole conversation or most of their conversation is quoting from the word of God and you suddenly realise how they got through what they got through because they know the word of God. It's part of their DNA. That's something that we, you know, I know as kids perhaps we used to learn Bible verses and, uh, and wondered if that kind of thing is worth doing, learning things by rote. Yes, it is because it gets the word of God inside you. The second thing is, I think, you know, one of the things I've noticed is, and, and in fact, when I went to Nigeria last year, I took my uh, 17, it was, it was 17 then, he's 18 now, my son with me. And as we, we went into a village where they were, um, where they were, had killed 22 of the number, the Fulani. The Fulani were even in the fields while we were there. Um, they were, um, as they were going out to farm their fields, they were being killed and they were beginning to starve to death because they couldn't farm their fields anymore. And as we came out, my son Seth said to me, Daddy said it should be compulsory for every British Christian to come to this village. So I said, well, why? He said, because they're dying, they're dying of starvation, they're being killed. He said, but they've got this amazing joy in their hearts. And he said, you know, go to our churches. <laughs> he said, and everybody's miserable. <laughs> 
He's obviously not been to... Well, he's in the Mars Road this morning. But, uh, uh, but no, you know, and it's true that I can honestly say in all of the 40 years, I can't remember meeting a miserable persecuted Christian. I've met lots of frightened persecuted Christians, but I've never met a miserable one. And, you know, they, we are so comfortable in our churches and we shouldn't be comfortable in church. We, uh, you know, we should be challenged in church. And, and, and so wherever, wherever you find persecution in the world, uh, so often you also find incredible growth in Christianity because keep people, we were never promised an easy life. In fact, Paul tells Timothy that, when, uh, that, that if you want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you'll be persecuted. So, you know, we shouldn't be comfortable, but we should be challenged. These people have got a great lesson to teach us, and wherever it happens, the church grows. China has got the fastest... Well, no, Iran's got the fastest growing church, as David will tell me if he's here. Uh, But China, 130 million Christians in China amidst um, incredible persecution. So they've got a lot to teach us. That's brilliant. Thank you so much for sharing that, Merv. And if you want to hear more from Merv, he'll be around at the end of the service. There's people um, at the the, the stand up there to talk to you. But do invite Merv and Wendy for dinner. There's some incredible stories he can share. Um, He might might not eat the food, um, but... But, he, but do invite them around for dinner or for coffee because they're such a great couple. And for Merv, I know that this isn't a job for him. This is his life. Um, he's given his, the last 40 years of his life to it. So let's give Merv another round of applause. Thank you so much. Cheers. Thank you. Oh. Working with Merv is a lot of fun, I can tell you that. It's a, it's a blast. Um. <laughs> okay, so my name's Scott. Um, for those who don't know me, I'm part of the eldership team at Emmaus, um, and I also serve um, helping to lead CSW um, as my day job. So I've been with CSW for about three and a half, four years now. Um, and at my, my interview, one of the questions from Merv was, um, so you know that we're a Christian organization, but we don't just speak up for Christians. <clears throat> is, that, is that okay with you? Uh, and I said, yes, of course it is. And I said, why? Which is a slightly different question. And it's just intuitively, I knew that's what Jesus would do, Right? That's what Jesus would do. And then you can ask yourself another why. But, but why do I think that? Um, we know intuitively within us that this is, this is how Jesus would be, behave. But to, to know intellectually or theologically, or even kind of like what's the moral imperative for, for standing up for, for people of all faiths and none. So actually over the last couple of years as an organization, we've really kind of drilled into that because it's important to understand why we do these things. Um, there's a, a moral theologian called Richard Guler, and he says that if, if you want to, to know why the right thing is the right thing, if you want to understand kind of morality as a Christian, you go first to the, to the Sermon on the Mount, which he says is the, the charter document for Christian morality. He said that plus the radical sayings of Jesus give you 
a revealed morality. So it's those kind of those radical sayings, which for me are the, the, the radical encounters of Jesus, Jesus where he, he meets people, and the radical teaching. So it's, the, it's what Jesus did as well as what Jesus said that, that really shows us how we should act in the world. One of the key passages when you kind of when you, you're looking through for those kind of encounters, for me and for us as an organization has been the Good Samaritan. Uh, the Samaritan. We're the ones who call him good. Note that. Jesus never called him good. Um, and it's a story that I've really dug into in, over the last year. That I, I, I'm pretty sure there's, there's not a week that's gone by that I haven't read that story and, and probably got something new out of it as well. So I thought this morning we'd just spend, we'd spend 10 minutes just getting, getting inside that story and then could look at a couple of stories of where we uh, can f- take some of those principles as an organization and live them out. So I just want to invite my friend Ellis. A round of applause for Ellis. It's my glamorous assistant. Cheers. Okay, we're going to try some. <laughs> Ellis, is, uh, Ellis has been working at CSW for uh, what, about three months now. Yep. Um, oh. So what we're going to do is uh, we're going we're gonna to read through. If you want to get your Bibles out, it's Luke 10, 25 to 37. Um, we're going to do this slightly differently. Alice is going to start reading, and I'm going to jump in and say pause um, at different moments, and we're going to talk about what's happening within the story. Are you okay with that? Yep. Play. Shall I go? Yeah, go. On one occasion... Pause. Just checking. <laughs> <laughs> On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Pause. Okay, people do this a lot, don't they? they? They like to test Jesus. Sometimes it's with a kind of good intention. You look at the, uh, the, the, the rich young ruler, kind of he's actually asking some questions. But often it's like, I just want to, I want to understand what you're saying and I want to point out what's wrong with it. Play. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Pause. So it's a common enough question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And what he's saying is, kind of, what is what's your teaching all about here? play. What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? Pause. Love that. Jesus has just flipped the whole thing. He's, he's answered the question with a question. So the, 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 this, te- this expert in the, in the law has come to try and trip Jesus up. And he's, he said, I'm not, I'm not playing that game. How do you read it? What's your take on this? Play. He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. Pause. Good answer. Well done, teacher of the law. Um, so we know that that comes from Deuteronomy 6. Uh, so it's a kind of summing up of the commands at Mount Horeb, uh, which start by saying, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul. Um, it then goes on to say, kind of, you, need to, you need to get these commands into yourself. You need to write them down. You need to tell them to your children. You need to write them, stick them on your foreheads. They're that important. So this is a, part, this is a good answer. Carry on. And love your neighbor as yourself. Pause. <laughs> so we don't just stop with the um, love the Lord your God. We then have to say, well, how does that outwork? So the, the, the teacher of the law has said, well, we've got this bit over here, which sums up the commands. And then we need to look at how that's acted out with people. So I think I'm going to use Leviticus 19, which is part of the holiness code in the, the Torah, which talks about how we should act towards one another which is really interesting. Um, so it talks about how you act uh, towards old people in your community. Um, 
trying to keep my eyes closed and not look at anybody when I say that. <laughs> um, how do you treat those, um, those that are poor amongst you? And how, especially in 1934, how do you treat the foreigner? And you're told implicitly that you should treat the foreigner as if he is native-born. Play. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. Pause. Done. That's it, right? The expert has asked, asked his question, given an answer. Jesus says, yes, great answer. Do that then. Finished. And you can imagine Jesus kind of turning away, maybe talking to his disciples, and then play. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Pause. Oh, right. You want to go there. You want to go there. Now, let me tell you a story Jesus kind of goes on to. And, yeah, you want to go there. You, you want to, what you are doing in that moment is challenging how, you, how your description of neighbor, your understanding of who the neighbor is, this rare, this close one, that's what you want me to explain back to you. You want me to, to align myself with your teaching. So let me tell you a story, play. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho Pause. when he... So it's just to say, that's, that's going to be a Jewish man. You're going from Jerusalem to Jericho. That's two, two Jewish cities. We go from there. It's about 17 miles. Play. When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Pause. He's looking like he's dead. This man has been badly beaten. They've taken his clothes because those are quite expensive, and they leave him as if he's dead by the side of the road. Play. A priest, hap a priest happened to be going down the Pause. same... Pause. A priest. That's good. Play. Going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Pause. What? <laughs> That's not how this story should go. You can imagine yourself listening to, this, to Jesus tell this story. That is not how this story should go. A priest is walking by, and he crosses by on the other side of the road. Now, okay, we, we understand that a priest cannot touch a dead body, right? But that's part of this Old Testament law. You can't, as a priest, you cannot touch a dead body. So if he's looking in a ditch and sees this guy that he thinks is dead, he must pass by on the other side. In fact, he must actually pass by on the other side of the road because he can't even let his shadow touch the dead man. And what we're seeing is Old Testament law getting in the way of humanity. Play. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled... Pause. Whoa. Okay, so we've got a Levite who's just passed by. That A Levite is your holy guy. He's your worship leader. He's Pete Burton. <laughs> who's got some... I've got total boot envy of Pete Burton this morning. His new DMs are amazing. Um, so the Levite passes by. And then you've got Samaritan. And you can almost hear the audible intake of breath. Samaritan. Jews and Samaritans do not get on. Do not get on. Just a, a one chapter previous, you've got the disciples being sent out through Samaria, and they're not welcomed into a, into a Samaritan village. And they ask Jesus if it's okay to call down fire from heaven and burn them up. Jesus says, no, that is not okay. That is not how we do things. So at this point, a Samaritan. Play. As he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. 
which Pause. is... Okay. So that's not how we were expecting the story to go. That's really not how those hearing this story was ex were expecting this to go. And you've got this kind of... I love the way that Jesus doesn't allow this story to resolve. And it's, it's, there's no happy ending here that the Samaritan and the Jew don't come back together in this kind of great big meeting. He doesn't allow that. He doesn't allow this story to become transactional either. There's no repayment going on here. Okay, play. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Pause. Not the priest. Not the holy guy, but the Samaritan? Play. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Amen. Go and do likewise. Go and spend yourself on the poor. Go and feed the hungry and house the homeless. Go and do likewise. Ellis, thank you very much. Cheers. Little round of applause. So I just want to, I'd like to, to just draw out three principles from uh, that Samaritan story that might impact our lives and kind of certainly guides the work of CSW. Um, the first is a principle of action. Loving your neighbor is an active process. We've got to be people that cross the road, people that go. Um, Acts 1 verse 8, we're told to go into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And, you know, we, we, Jerusalem we're comfortable with, right? Jerusalem, to be honest, Jerusalem are you guys, you're my friends, my family. That's Jerusalem. Judea, okay, well, it's the people out there. They're, we share a, a common history, and you know, they look like us. They speak like us. Samaria? And that's difficult. Go to Samaria. Go to the people who are not like you, those that you don't trust, those that actually you might cross the road to avoid, those that you don't share a common culture with, that you don't understand. Go to them. And then if you're left with any doubt, once you finish there, go everywhere. Go to the ends of the earth. Go. Principle of action. Second principle is one of humility. In the story, we, we see... Um, we see the Samaritan putting the beaten man on his donkey, right? And, and anybody hearing that story would understand that what you're doing in that moment is taking the position of the servant. You've given the, the, the beaten man the place of authority on top of the donkey, and you're now leading, um, leading that donkey. We need to be taking the position of servant, which is what we do... Um, what we do at CSW, we, it's really important to understand that we are never the most important people in the story. Right? And that's what being an advocate is all about. We're telling people's story. And actually, more often than not, what we're doing is opening the door and letting people come through. So just this week, we've had um, a delegation of six from Burma um, come to us. And you know, our job is to get the meetings with, with senior officials and MPs and get them in Brussels. And we open the door and we introduce them and we step back. That's, that's what we need to do as Christians. Finally, the, the principle of compassion. The Samaritan was moved by compassion. Um, Richard Guler puts it like this. He says, uh, in this parable, three people notice the victim in the ditch. The priest and the Levite look at him and pass on. When the Samaritan looks in the ditch and sees the victim, he is moved with compassion. We ask, did not all three see the same thing? 
When we realize that the parable is within the framework of explaining the meaning of love your neighbor as yourself, we can understand that they obviously did not see the same reality. Whatever the priest and Levite saw when they looked in the ditch was clearly not themselves, so they continued on. The Samaritan, however, stops to help the victim as though he were caring for himself, beaten and lying there wounded. He treats the victim as though he were caring for himself. We need, to, we need to see ourselves in the faces of those that we um, are called to care for and to reach out to. We are called to, to love our neighbor as ourself. So last summer, as Merv mentioned, um, we had the opportunity to, to travel to Iraq. Our, our principal reason for being there was to, to look at the um, situation for Christians and other minorities on Nineveh Plain, which is just outside Mosul, and, and what the situation was like for them returning um, after Mosul had fallen, once ISIS had, had kind of been defeated. So we spent a lot of time in, in IDP camps, um, meeting uh, guys like this chap who's uh, spent that, you know, you talk about IDP camps and refugee camps. This, and you, ex you have kind of a certain expectation of what life must be like there. And it is hard. Uh, it is awful. These people have lost everything. Um, and you know, these are normal people. We sat down with, with people who are teachers, and, th and they're, they're now just left with nothing. But what you get are smiling kids playing football. And that's my, my that and kind of drinking sweet Iraqi tea uh, are my, my key memories. Um, one encounter sticks in my mind and, and really... I guess exemplifies what we do as CSW. Um, we sat with this, this man called uh, Bubba Sheikh. Um, I think it's the next slide, there you go. That's Bubba Sheikh. He's a, he's a big guy. Yeah, he must be like 6'2 or something. He's a big guy, long robes and this uh, uh, beard envy beard there. So he's, a, he's a big guy. And we sat with him. You know, we we'd driven that day to um, to a town called Sinjar. We'd driven over Sinjar Mountain, um, and from the top of Sinjar Mountain, you can look down at the town of Sinjar, which is a Yazidi um, Yazidi town that had been um, overtaken by ISIS, and tens of thousands fled, thousands died. Um, and they fled up the mountain, up Sinjar Mountain. The Yazidi have a, a saying that they, the Yazidi have only one friend, and that's the mountain. Um, so they, they fled up there, kind of just leave, yeah. And in the course of the, the, those weeks that followed, 7,000 young um, women and girls were taken, Yazidi women and girls. And this Baba, Baba Sheikh is the, um, is the spiritual head of the Yazidi people. And we, we sat with him and were asking, what what can you do? And he said, what do you mean, what can I do? What can I do? What can I do? And, you know, I've... I, I don't think I've ever experienced that kind of... the feeling of hopelessness that came from him. It's like, what can I do? At any moment, you know, we know that we could be... we could be attacked again. I know that 4,000 of of my girls are in slavery still, what can I do? And it's at that moment that it struck me that this is the Good Samaritan story, and, and that's why we are there. You know, when, when people like the Yazidi run out of hope, as Christians we come with hope. 
And as Christians, we, we then take their, their case and their story and we beat on the doors until people listen because that's what we do as Christians. Baba Sheikh is my neighbor. I just wanted to finish with a quick day up, update on, um, on Leah, who I know um, you've been praying for. Um, for those of you who don't know, Leah is a 15-year-old from uh, northern Nigeria who was taken by Boko Haram back in February along with 109 others. Um, yeah, taken by Boko Haram. Um, and when the rest of her classmates were allowed back, she was... Uh, she was asked to convert to Islam. She refused uh, um, to renounce her faith and was taken back off the coach. So we've been campaigning hard for her her release. Um, and so thank you for your prayers. Thank you for, for those of you that have signed petition actions. Thank you for that. Um, at the moment, she's still alive, which praise God. We were told that she was going to be executed about a month and a half ago now. Um, and Boko Haram um, didn't execute her. They did execute two of the others that were being kept with her, but she is still alive, Leah is still alive. Um, they've said that she won't be allowed to leave. We don't believe that's true. Um, we will keep working um, until we see her released. Um, what we are doing at the moment, as you'll see, you've got petitions on your, or little forms on your, um, on your seats. They're calling now for, for the Nigerian government to do something about the more general situation to make, make schools in Nigeria safe for everybody, particularly schools in the north of Nigeria. The reason why 110 uh, girls were taken by Boko Haram is because, they were, because the school wasn't properly protected. We want to see an end to that. So in a minute, I'm going to ask you to, um, as part of our response this morning, to fill that, fill that um, form in. Um, But first, um, can we just have the next slide up? Okay. So this is um, just a, we've got a few people around at the back who'd love to talk to you about CSW afterwards. Um, these are uh, people from Emmaus that are working at CSW in some way or other. So you've got Christian on the top left, who's one of our trustees, Ellis, um, who so ably read the Good Samaritan story. Dave, who is desperately trying to grow his biceps in there. Uh, that story there. Actually, that's true. He is. He's looking for sponsors. He, uh, he is working out hard to try and fill that fire warden's armband and trying to raise money doing it. So if you'd like to sponsor his bicep, we've got forms. Seriously, we have forms. Um, and then you've got Dawn. Dawn um, heads up our uh, engagement with London Southeast Churches. So if you, wanna, if you feel like moved by what we've talked about this morning, if you want to start a prayer group, if you want to get more involved, Dawn is the person to talk to. There you go. But I want to leave you with the, with the challenge um, of the Good Samaritan. And the challenge really is to live between the, the question of the expert, who is my neighbor, and the challenge of Jesus to go and then do likewise. So I want to encourage you this week, and maybe that's your daily prayer. Jesus, show me who my neighbor is today. Show me who my neighbor is. And when he's revealed that, choose to cross the road choose to care for the stranger, defend the poor and needy, house the homeless, clothe the naked, feed the hungry, go and do likewise. Amen? Amen. Um, Pete, I wonder if you get the band back up. It's around somewhere. And this is time for you to um, fill in that sheet if you would like to. There's no compulsion there. Um, and as Pete's playing, you can be filling that in. Once you've filled it in, then join with the song. We're, we're standing together with the church. 
Oh, there are more forms um, being distributed at the moment. If you don't have one, maybe you could wave. Thank you.